Hello, and welcome to this episode of Engineering a Better World, a society, technology and policy podcast from the House Magazine and the Institution of Engineering and Technology. I'm your host, John Ellidge. How can technology lead the fight against climate change? In this series, from the heart of Westminster, the House Magazine and the OET discuss with parliamentarians and industry experts how technology and engineering can provide policy solutions to our changing world. In this episode, we look at how the effort to reach net zero begins with the individual choices we all make at home. So with me today, I have Conservative MP Anthony Brown, who previously worked as a journalist, as Chief Executive of the British Bankers Association, and as an advisor to Boris Johnson while he was Mayor of London. He now chairs the All-Party Parliamentary Environment Group. Anthony, thank you for being here. Hello. We also have with us Rick Hartwick, the IET's Built Environment Lead, who previously worked in the financial sector and in the EU, and describes his passions as digitalization and decarbonisation. Rick, nice to hear from you. Pleasure to be here. And last but not least, we have Stephanie Baxter, who is a Senior Policy Lead for Innovation and Skills at the IET. Hello, Stephanie. Hi there. If I could start with a fairly, a fairly big question. As we record this, we are, we are just coming off the back of, of the end of COP26. It's obviously the big, the big news in the, in the environmental calendar. Anthony, what's your, your big takeaway from the conference? How are you feeling about the whole thing? Well, clearly, we would have all liked to see more progress, but that doesn't mean a lot of progress wasn't made. In fact, it is a big leap forward in getting a global commitment to getting towards net zero. It you know, certainly won't take us to the destination. There's a lot more work to do. But the commitment from countries around the world to phase down coal, it's the first time that's been um, mentioned in international negotiation. There's commitments from many countries to move away from fossil fuel cars, petrol and diesel cars. There was a commitment on cash to help developing countries move to decarbonise $100 billion a year. So that is good progress, but we clearly have far further to go. And it is difficult when you've got 200 countries around the world, population of the world about 7 billion people, lots of those countries have got vested interests. It's all progress is always going to be slow. This is going to be a super tanker. And for those who are impatient, it's always going to, and that includes me, are always going to be very frustrated. But it is a big step forward. So and we should sort of bank that and then carry on pushing further ahead to get to net zero. Rick, would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, it is it's certainly a big step forward. I think it, from a UK consumer perspective, it was good to see the debate happening in our backyard, so to speak, and hopefully there's a better understanding of some of the complexity of the issues and why everybody should be doing something on an individual basis, let alone on a national basis. I do love the idea of, of talking down coal, and I do hope that that really succeeds. The other thing I found interesting was the methane objective that had been set. Quite interesting that that hasn't really come up in the headlines before now, well, certainly from my perspective. It was a relative new thing. The, the government's only started talking about it, I mean, very, very recently, and it uh, was actually surprising for the UK government and to me, actually, how easy it was to get a commitment on that compared to coal, for example. Yeah. And obviously, we had the commitment on deforestation as well, which is uh, very welcome to stop deforestation by 2030. Stephanie, what was your your big takeaway from COP26? Well, yeah, well, it was good to see those big ambitions. But of course, with my skills and innovation hat on, 
to realise this, we're going to have to need the right resources and infrastructure in place right now, as well as if we're going to achieve these targets. We've got a really big skills issue on our hand. We've done lots of research and looking to the future, half of employees we speak to saying net zero isn't going to be achievable by 2050. So obviously it's great to have the ambition, but we need to have the infrastructure to back it up. So, so our, our our big topic today is net zero starts at home. We're we're talking about the energy efficiency and so on of our our existing housing stock. Rick, built environment is 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 your big thing. What is the quality of the existing built environment when it comes to things like energy efficiency within the UK? Put it simply, not very good. Uh, many of our houses are old, and we have really strict policies on what you can do in protected areas, old homes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that really makes it very difficult to get everybody onto the same stage. I don't think you'll ever get every house down to zero carbon. Net zero carbon is, is, is possible with the use of, of technology. It's a huge target we face. When we published our report, Scaling Up Retrofit 2050, about three years ago, a calculation I did about that time was that every minute we need to retrofit a house between now and 2050. At that stage, it, it wasn't legislation, a legal target of, of the country, but it is now. And uh, it's even more pressing that we get on and do that because we haven't been doing a, a house a minute since then in the last three years anyway. Anthony, a house a minute, that sounds that sounds like quite a big deal. Is that is that plausible from where you're sitting? Well, it certainly is a big deal. And uh, decarbonising our homes is the sort of biggest bit of the jigsaw left, really. I and mean, there's other things like getting aviation to net zero, which you don't know quite how we're going to do. But homes is the, is the big thing. The government published its uh, heat and building strategy a few weeks back. Just one observation I would make, and this comes back to the, the COP26 summit as well, but it's often said that change takes longer to come than expected. And then once it once it starts, it happens a lot faster than expected. I certainly hope this will probably be true of homes. That at the moment, one of the challenges we don't really have a commercial technology to decarbonise the homes. In terms of think, thinking of things like heat pumps, they may well work, but actually we don't have an industry there to to make them and install them and the, the, the fitters needed and so on. As soon as they're brought out at scale, and this is part of the role of government to make that happen, you will see the teams will develop with the skills to install them, the prices will come down, they'll become far more uh, effective and efficient, and that is the pattern of technology. But at the moment, we're still in the early days there, so it is frustratingly slow. But once you get the installation of uh, heat pumps, both in new new built housing and uh, existing housing, then it'll probably go far further than you think. And I think the same will probably happen of electric vehicles as well. But actually, we've got a commitment in the UK to phase out petrol and diesel cars by 2030. But once electric vehicles, once the prices come down even further, they're coming down already. Once people see actually they're a joy to ride, uh, once we've got the electric charging network across the country, then I think you'll find consumers switching voluntarily to electric vehicles far quicker than any legalised mandate. And we've seen the sales of them double just in the last year. And I think a, a lot of countries that have got later dates of phasing out of vehicles like 2040, for example, will find that actually because the technology is there, because the car companies have developed it, that the switch will happen far quicker than it's legislated. And I think the same, I hope the same, will happen in decarbonising our homes. But there is 28 million homes in Britain, so it's no easy task. I mean, obviously, greening the built environment is, a, you know, it's a pretty skilled job. Stephanie, skills is, is your big your big policy area. Do we have the workforce that is actually capable of delivering that revolution at the moment? Well, sadly, not right now. Skills at the best of times, um, we're lacking a sufficient engineering skilled workforce. But now it's ever more urgent that we have people with the right skills. 
So this is about upskilling current workforces to address the challenges that we're currently facing, especially in sustainability and achieving net zero. But we also need to be thinking ahead as well. So how do we address future-proof skills and make sure the right people coming through the system are equipped to deal with these kinds of challenges climate change you know it's been a rapid transformation so we really need like more people to be able to sort of think innovatively be agile being able to respond to these kinds of challenges that we're going to face in the future we do a lot of research into skills and 64% of employees that we surveyed this year think that sustainability will come, become even more important to their organisation in the next five years. Just bring it back to the topic of the, the built environment specifically. I mean, Rick, if someone is a, you know, just a, a, a bog standard British household looking at their property, what are the things about it that would need, that would need to change to actually kind of make it you know, fit for, for a net zero future? The real challenge we face is that there's many soundbites out there, one of them being gas must go and heat pumps must be installed, but it's actually not that simple. It needs an integrated solution, such as increasing the energy efficiency of the building envelope. So if you seal it up and make it airtight, you then have to put in ventilation systems so that the air is circulated, avoid moisture buildup. You then need to put in a heating system that's appropriate for that new house. Now, that does mean a big step down and certainly does mean that we um, have houses that are really comfortable to live in. The one project we looked at when we had a report three years ago was up in Nottingham and one of the residents after this project, Energy Sprung project had been done, said, I now have a whole house I can live in. Prior to that, you could only afford to really heat one room at a time. And that would be the major, major benefit for homeowners, people in social housing, is that we'd wind up with healthy buildings. But it's an integrated solution and nothing really stands on its own. Um, There's lots of discussion as well around heat pumps and the role they play, and we think they do have a role to play. But we also feel perhaps we should be looking at how we can improve them, how they can work better in, in hybrid situations with boilers on the older housing stock that I, I mentioned earlier. There's plenty of work to be done to look at the systems that we're installing in, in our houses so that energy efficiency, zero carbon, comfortable homes becomes the norm for, for everybody. Electrification, I think, is a huge challenge. Can we generate enough electricity? Because that seems to be the way to go for the primary energy source in the house. The big elephant in the room here is we also, we don't have enough housing stock. We're meant to be building, was it, quarter of a million new homes a year. We are not managing that as a nation. Anthony, you, you're also, I believe, very active in, in the campaign to defend the, the Green Belt and kind of make sure we're building new homes in particular ways. I mean, how do we make sure that, that we are building those homes and that they are up to the right environmental standards? Well, the, the actual government target for home building is 300,000 a year, and we are, we are actually building about a quarter of a million a year at the moment. Although I have to say there's some, definitely some debate about exactly how many new houses you do need a year, but that's slightly sort of out of scope here. We definitely need more, more houses. The government is planning to make sure that all homes are net zero ready by uh, 2025 and that's only four years away all houses will have to be built compatible with net zero not there's not it's net zero ready rather than just net zero because their electricity may not be net zero the whole electricity supply isn't going to be net zero till 2035 but it does mean that heat pumps will have to be or, or other forms of net zero 
heating or net zero compatible heating will have to be installed uh, within four years. And that will create a huge critical mass for the heat pump uh, industry. I assume heat pumps rather than uh, hydrogen. Hydrogen heated houses are, I mean, that's the other sort of track the government are looking at. Uh, there's various pilots on that, but I know there's huge amounts of scepticism and the environmental movement about how successful that would be, or at least how widely that applicable that would be. There are other things the government are looking at, like local heating networks, which may, again, play a role. And I think in the battle against climate change, you need to use every tool in the toolbox, but some will prove a lot more effective than others. And at the moment, the top bet is uh, is heat pumps. But we also need to do, obviously, a lot more, as uh, Rick was saying, a lot more in terms of home insulation. I mean, the government in its manifesto is committed to over £9 billion on uh, insulation, but that's mainly for houses where people suffer fuel poverty and public buildings and social housing. The privately owned housing stock, we did have the also the Green Homes grant for that, but that the that obviously suffered big problems in terms of actual implementation. Implementation is critical in making sure policies are successful, but we clearly need to do more more in that area in terms of insulating the existing stock of houses, the 28 million. The, build, the amount of new houses we build is only about 1% of the total stock each year. So although it's critical to get, and that's what your question was about, it's critical to get that right, but actually we'll only get to net zero if we do the backlog of the existing stock. I mean, just staying with with house building for a moment, is there a tension between hitting that that 300,000 target and making sure that we are building houses in the right way? I can't see any reason in the sort of, certainly in the medium term, why building net zero houses should be more complicated or more time consuming than building houses that aren't net zero compatible. I mean, it is a problem at the moment because, as Stephanie was saying, we don't have the people with the skills to do it. The technology is not quite there yet. We need to make sure the, the technology advances a bit more. But once we get the house building industry to be fully ready for net zero and fully capable of building net zero houses i can't see why it should be any different from building houses that aren't net zero so yes there might be it might make it more difficult for the next couple of years but hopefully after that it will be uh, there should be no, none of the tension that you're highlighting john that's a very interesting question because in i think it was about 2015 2016 government stopped the rule that was going to require new homes to be built to code four level and they abandoned those codes code four would have been pretty much pretty close to a zero carbon home. I think we think at the IAT, my colleagues at the IAT and the Built Environment Panel really think that it's possible to build net zero homes right now. And so when the rule came out, started from 2025, 2026, we couldn't believe it because the technology is there, the ability is there. These houses that are being built now very likely have to be retrofitted in some way to allow for the heating technology of the future because they're probably not built up to the insulation standards. One of the exercises we did look at was very, very rough, and so I hesitate to quote numbers but for a few thousand pounds extra between five and ten thousand pounds extra on a house you can actually have that built to net zero standards so why wait five years when you've got to go back and rework that house at probably at a higher cost than that five or ten thousand pounds yeah. i mean rick makes an absolutely valid point there it's, it'll clearly be far more cost effective in the long run to make them build them net zero rather than uh, retrofit them and i share his uh, many in the environment movement share his frustration at the slow movement here i think one, one of the issues for the government is that they do need to consult on a lot of different things to make sure the rules are really appropriate. So, for example, one thing that's happening at the moment that I'm, I'm quite keen on is uh, making sure that all new build houses with off-street parking have got charging points for electric vehicles. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily expect that for a, you know, a, a flat or so, so on, but the government has consulted on that and is committed to introducing it. But there's, the more you look at the detail of that, the more complicated it becomes. And the government's very 
keen to make sure in, in this area and all other public policy areas that there aren't unintended consequences or it doesn't require things that are uh, pointless. So another example that I've had many questions about is um, requiring solar panels on roofs. And that absolutely, you know, I'm very keen on that. Uh, it makes sense to install it when the houses are being built, but actually not necessarily on all, all houses the whole time. And so, you, again, you just need to look at the, the circumstances in which it's right to require it and not require it. And it's that sort of detail that the government, I know on, on various different things, is grinding through, but it's very, it is very, it is frustrating. And we should get to building net zero homes as quickly as possible and make sure they don't need, that homes being built now don't need to be retrofitted in the years to come. Stephanie, what kind of actions do you want to see from the the volume house builders to kind of make sure they are they are doing building the right homes for the future? Well, as employers, I think they also need to make sure they're investing in upskilling their workforce and also investing in the workforce of the future because they're the ones that will reap the benefits for the future. Ways in which they can engage with the education system through apprenticeships. And that's a really effective way because it will also enable them to train people in the specialist skills that they need for which part of building that's necessary and in the right technologies. So remembering that training can build resilience, but also I would urge employers to be prepared for the future. I mean, it strikes me that like we, we hear a lot about ideas like the, the 15 minute city and we, you know, after the pandemic, we're hearing a lot about whether working from home is going to be a much bigger, much bigger part of life than it ever was. Are we living in the right places? Are we actually going to end up with, with a built environment that's just not actually fit for the way we're going to live in the mid 21st century? Anthony, perhaps we could go to you with that. That's a, a very good question. I do think that uh, working from home is uh, is a new permanent feature of our working lives. It's not just a, a short-term consequence of the coronavirus because we've all learned how to do uh, video conferencing now, Zoom or Teams and so on. And um, the, I think that will completely change the way we work. And so that I know for a lot of people that will affect where they want to live, that actually if you only have to attend work physically two days a week, then you might live further away. And I mean, ultimately, that's could lead to a change in the sort of geograph- geographic landscape of the UK in the same way that when automobiles were invented, it led to the creation of uh, suburbs because suddenly everyone could uh, drive everywhere. That will be a slow process changing that if people were happy to live uh, further or further out. The, it might affect where people want to build houses. It certainly affect where people live. I think it's very important building, and, and this is happening in my constituency in South Cambridgeshire, that you build where there are good transport uh, networks already, as it were, to, to make sure that people don't have to rely on cars but can use uh, public transport. So when they do go into work, they'll, they'll be able to do it in a more easily do it in a, in a net zero way. But having said that, if all cars end up net zero, then that, that aspect of it won't matter so much. Rick, do you think we're living in the right places? I live in the country, so I am. No, seriously, <laughs> it's a really good question. I, I agree with Anthony that the work-life balance has changed. Work from home is a is a thing to stay. Digital meetings, rather like this, is a thing to to stay. I think the issue will become really one around: is this house a comfortable house? And it gets back to the whole retrofit issue. I think the empty buildings on the edges of cities creates opportunities. Dying business CBDs creates opportunities to turn that into really interesting housing, without having to build new houses. Perhaps even without having to knock that building down. So I think there is going to be a rejigging of the landscape of the cities as we see it. Our people live in community and need to be in community. And even if it's two days a week, it would be nice to have that office kind of close to where you live anyway, you know, rather than the two-hour train ride from 
out in the country into a city. So I, I, I think the whole thing is just going to change fairly slowly, but probably quicker than I think when I say fairly slowly. And Stephanie, do you think we've seen the end of commuting? On, on a personal level, I hope so. But <laughs> you know, you're right. I think homeworking is is here to stay. And just with my skills hat on again, it's, it also uh, brings into the fact that, you know, we're going to have to have a generation of people that are digitally literate and digitally skilled. That's another thing to bear in mind going forward. And just, just to wrap up, I'm going to ask everyone for their, what single thing would you most like to see the government do to advance this agenda? Um, Rick, perhaps we could start with you. I think they've done, they're doing a whole lot of things at the moment. It's a pity they can't do them on a bigger scale. When you see what COVID cost us, it would be great to to throw that sort of money at at the solution. However, I think government in a way needs to step back and encourage entrepreneurship to do something really special here. I think there's a real need for businessmen to step forward, whether that's on the consulting side, giving good advice, integrating with good construction companies. The supply chain needs to be rejected completely. It's pretty much operating as it did from the built environment construction sector, as it did hundreds of years ago. The whole thing needs to change. And I think whatever can be done by government should be stimulating driving that change in the sector. Stephanie, what's your what's your one big ask? Well, I'd love to see um, more investment in upskilling and reskilling, perhaps um, subsidies to improve that. Like Rick says, a lot of innovation and ideas are going to come through entrepreneurs. So it'd be great to see that being fostered throughout the education system as well. And finally, Anthony, last word. I agree with the others that actually it's, it's uh, really important to keep entrepreneurs and indeed private sector on side as part of the solution here. The government's not going to do it by itself. In fact, I'm in the middle of sitting on a bill committee of the of a nuclear financing bill it's about uh, introducing a new financing model for the nuclear industry. But it's clearly that's going to be far more effective building nuclear power stations that it's done with private companies rather than the government trying to do it itself. If there's one thing on the particular a subject matter for this uh, podcast about homes. If there's one thing that I wanted in that particular area, it would be for the government to announce the successor to the Green Homes Grant and how it's going to help insulate homes for people who are owner-occupiers who may not be wealthy enough to insulate their own homes. Thank you to all our panellists, Anthony Brown, Rick Hartwick and Stephanie Baxter. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Engineering a Better World from The House Magazine and the Institution of Engineering and Technology. You can subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. And do leave a rating review to help others find the show. Our recordist was Rich Jarman. Production and editing on Engineering a Better World was by James Miller and Nick Hilton for Podo. Thanks for listening. Listener.